Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Borodow. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of the beautiful lands, wherever you're listening. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who's been impacted by suicide. The pain it brings to our lives, but also the desire to make positive change for all of us to live well. Today, I'm talking with Richard Ramsey, co-founder of Living Works. This is the third episode in season three of A World Where Living Works, a season focused on learning about the history and evolution of their groundbreaking suicide first aid training practices now being taught around the world. We know Living Works today is a global leader in suicide intervention. Thousands of trainers in workplaces and communities around the world teaching gold-class suicide first aid programs like the two-day assist workshop, the half-day Safe Talk Suicide Alert Helper Workshop, and now the 90-minute online interactive introduction to suicide first aid, Living Work Start. These are programs that have been endorsed in more than 50 peer-reviewed journals around the world that have informed international policy and are implemented everywhere from schools to military bases, hospitals to sport clubs, and everything in between. In the last episode, Richard was just about to tell us about how fellow co-founder, Brian Tenney met Bruce Turley, who was key to Living Works development and, like us listeners, was also keen to know what was in Brian's suitcase. Hello again, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Kim. Great to talk with you today. Now we need to know what's in that suitcase. He was feeling kind of bad that these Aussie people didn't care. Bruce walked up to him and said, you know, I like what you had to say. And what's in that suitcase? <laughs> and <laughs> so Brian seized the opportunity to tell him what was in the suitcase. Thought, Finally, someone's asked me. Yeah, right. So that actually then led to Lifeline Australia. And with us, it's in the background, but Lifeline Australia wrote a grant proposal for a Commonwealth grant which was approved and granted to do what was considered a three-year portability study. So the idea was, could you port something that was developed in North America into the Australian culture and have it accepted? So they agreed on a three-year study to see whether that was possible. And the first year, 1996, was to have three back-to-back training for trainers, starting in Bundaberg, which is the rural part, then going to Wollongong, which is an industrial city, and then to Melbourne as the big urban center. And we did three weeks of training for trainers starting in Bundaberg. We should have bought a bunch of rum, but... You didn't? No, my brother was all about Bundaberg rum, but I hadn't sort of caught on to it yet. So he wasn't very happy the fact that 
I'm very un-Australian. I, I don't drink it myself, but it is very popular. Yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, the three weeks was pretty onerous. We could have used a few snorts of, <laughs> of rum. Bundaberg, Wollongong and Melbourne, you're covering thousands and thousands of kilometres there. Yeah, well, we would finish up on Friday. Saturday was travel day, Sunday was tourist day, and checking the site of the next tea for tea, and Monday was to start the five days all over again. Oh, that's a lot. When we moved from Bundaberg to Wollongong, we came through Sydney and stayed in Sydney on Saturday night. So then we headed to Wollongong on Saturday, and Sunday, we still have pictures of walking around the sand dunes of Wollongong and experiencing that and then into the five days and then finally down to Melbourne where Bruce Turley was and finished up there. I was going to say, did you get bums on seats readily? Were the people who were working for Lifeline keen to give this a go? Oh, yeah, they were very good. It was a good relationship. And the outcome of all this was Lifeline Australia then set up a Living Works Australia arm Living at Works Australia originally was auspiced under the Lifeline Australia. Bruce was in charge of it. And in many respects, it was another fundraising arm for Lifeline in the same way that they were connected with Goodwill Industries. It really was a good example of social enterprises being connected or a spin-off from either a for-profit organization or a nonprofit. In this case, it was a nonprofit owning a for-profit, in effect, to help raise money, apart from doing the training of their own people and so forth. Yeah, that is an interesting model. And also, was this the first example then of crisis support services training in the Living Works Assist model? Because now you see around the world, I don't think people realise that most of these services, your lifelines and different support services where you have crisis calls, text or video, all are trained up in the Living Works model behind the scenes. Yeah. And it became a challenge over time. Like Australia was the first to really buy into the idea that something like the assist training should be part of their lifeline training. Then in the United States, when they set up a national crisis line and infrastructure organization to fund it, and it was called NSPL, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, we ended up in a contract with them to amalgamate what they were doing with what we were doing. And we actually had a conflict under the table most of the time. Are they going to have us integrate our approach to training underneath their auspices? Or are we getting them to adapt their training to our auspices? <laughs> yeah. But then what they did was, well, actually through one of their staff, Heather Stokes, who came eventually to Living Works, she was in charge of a standards and practice committee. And they had representatives from different training and other uh, organizations. And so what she did was she said, okay, this committee, we have to find all the training programs in the United States that might actually become our standard baseline. Not that the crisis lines will have to adopt that particular training, but they have to train up to it. And so they had 10 or 11 training programs. And then they took each of the committee members and said, you have to go and experience that training. And if you're associated with Living Works, let's say, 
you can't go to a living works training. You got to go somewhere else. So then they brought all the information back and said, okay, does anybody win? <laughs> and as it turned out, Living Works won. They decided that the two-day assist was the baseline that they wanted everybody to either incorporate into their training if they could, or to adjust their own training so it at least met those basic requirements. And so they started out back in 2006 with somewhere around 120 crisis agencies in the United States. And the history of crisis lines in the United States, similar to Canada, was not under the auspices of one organization. They were all independents. And they were organized in different kinds of ways and funded in different kinds of ways. Out of those 120, there was maybe 50 or 60% that were going to use the assist training. And then over time, that number or the percentage of the total number has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the real full circle smile for me was when the Los Angeles Suicide Prevention Center, under its new name, adopted ASSIST as its training program. And again, it was like, oh my God, we were learning from you guys back in the 80s, and now you've adopted our training as the standard for your training. <laughs> That's so amazing. That was a special feeling for me because myself and, well, actually, Brian and also Roger Tierney, who had died, we all got to know Dr. Farbro from that center quite well. And he was our idol, really, <laughs> for his faith in us in the 80s. And then to have that organization take on assist as their standard and incorporate it into their system was a big day. <laughs> yeah, that is a beautiful moment. And it was one of those private things. Nobody else really knew why that was so important, but it, it was just one of those, wow, this is really quite something. Because we really were quite literally the farm kids up in hinterland Canada that used to bring these experts from the United States up to conferences and get them to tell us how we should be doing things. And in fact, our first few years in California, we actually had quite a few discussions informally most of the time, but it was along the line of, wow, this is quite something. We were learning from you in the 70s. We'd bring you up to Canada and you would present at our conferences. Now here we are in California in the 80s. And just think in the 90s, maybe you will now have something new and you will bring it to Canada. And then the next decade, it'll be our turn to bring it back to the United States. Learning cycle. Yeah. <laughs> so... Well, it's interesting. It's happening with the international conference. You know, you talked about the South Africa one and Lars getting you to write that article ahead of that conference in the early 90s. What year was that? No, the early 2000s. It would be 2004. Early 2000s. Yeah. And then now 2021, the international conference is on the Gold Coast right. of Australia this year. And I just got a message from Living Works Australia just now saying that they're actually presenting on people in trauma occupations wow. with local first responders from Australia and around the world. And then you're presenting and bringing together that symposium to show what you've learned back out again. Yeah. It's just a nice synergy to see across the 20 years. And the presentation we made in South Africa was a panel presentation that had to do with what was going on in Scotland at the time and in Norway 
what was going on in Australia and what was going on in Canada. So the Australian presenters were Lindy and Lorna and Gaynor Hicks. And then there was Elaine Locke from Scotland. And Lars was presenting on behalf of Kirsty Silvova from Norway. And I was the overall moderator presenter of the Canadian startup. That's a great panel. Oh, it was just fantastic. And Lorna had been working up in the Kimberleys and had some great stories about working with Indigenous people. And, and Lindy, of course, is, she's been all over the world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I still, you know, talking about South Africa, she would say, oh, well, I mean, I originally came from Southern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, <laughs> and then she talked about the time that they had in Hong Kong after they had to leave. And then I think she was born in Singapore. And now she's the, you know, sort of lead in places like South Korea. And she's just an incredible lady. <laughs> I could talk to her all day. I've got a soft spot for her too, because she was my Safe Talk T for T trainer, my master trainer, yeah. mentor, also lives in the Northern Beaches. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the first time I met Lindy was in might have been the 1990s, we were back visiting, but she was the head of a lifeline sort of up the road in Manly or the next district over. And I remember going and meeting with her as a lifeline person, not realizing that in a few years, she was going to become a living and works person. And (laughs) And still now, yeah. And still, yes. Yeah, that's a little bit of those beginnings. And it was like Australia in the 1996 time, And then it was late 90s that the people from Norway came and started to really develop the training in northern Norway and Tromsø. And they did something that nobody has ever done before, and they continue to do it. They started their training with medical students in the medical school. And they also did something really unique in that they had a class of about 72 students They divided them into units of 12, and then they went out into the community and got 12 community kind of people to come into the training. So you were training doctors and community helper people together. All together? Yeah. Was there any resistance to that, or people thought that was a good idea? Because, you know, the clinicians versus regular people, I guess. No, they, they did like it. There may have been resistance. But they did a study two years later, published in 2007, and it was a qualitative study that went out to graduates of that school and to find out, you know, what were they doing as GPs in the community and what do they remember about their medical education and training? Oh, now they're in the workforce. Yeah. Yeah. And what did that show? Well, it had sort of good and bad news. The bad news was that if they were a surgeon or somebody like that or internal medicine, they didn't remember anything about their courses back in medical school. (laughs) So it was like practicing medicine on me. No, they sound like they're just living for the day, their schedule on that day. What they did remember was this two-day course they took on suicide prevention. They talked about using it, implementing it, and they talked about how important it was to help them with their attitudes towards difficult patients. 
So that was the good news. <laughs> that is amazing. They didn't retain their other medical knowledge. So I'd much rather a surgeon talk to me about my suicidal thoughts than operate yeah, on my That's right. Leg. So you, when you go to Norway, yes, you say you, if you get into suicide trouble, well, it'll be safe to go to a GP. But if you get a broken leg, well, maybe you should go to the, the local shaman or something. <laughs> <laughs> And what about the community people? Did you manage to track their responses years on? No, they didn't. And the evidence there, though, is, is that this whole thing started in northern Norway. And within a year or two, the Norwegian government decided that they should fund this program. And then they funded them on a year-to-year basis. And then a few years later, they decided to make it permanent funding to the VVAT organization. And then they went through a major reorganization of health and trauma care services, and they set up regional trauma centers. And the VVAT suicide prevention training became part of all of the regional centers. And in fact, at one point, they were going to, in a sense, make the VVAT people move from Tromso into one of the central trauma centers. And they put up a resistance and were granted the right to stay in Tromso. So it's still the headquarters of the VVAT program is still in Tromso, but the network of suicide intervention training is in all the regional trauma centers around the country. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah. And it was our first test of real indigenization, of changing everything except the scripts to capture the Norwegian culture and capture the Norwegian language and to film everything in Norway. And we had a very stringent kind of guideline for anyone who was going to adapt our program. And the Norwegians said they were happy to do that. But then they got into a couple of problems that they would rather not follow how we did it in North America. And one of the examples was they said, you know, the doctor scene where you have the doctor and the patient, and in your original scene, you have the patient sitting on one of those medical examination tables, and the doctor is sort of talking down to her, so to speak. And the Norwegian said, you know, we're prepared to do that, you know, if we have to. But, you know, in Norway, that's not the way the doctor and the patient sort of relate to each other. And she said, well we actually sit in chairs side by side. (laughs) And so we said, of course, you know, uh, you can do this. We'd like everyone to do that. (laughs) And then we had the same problem when we indigenized in Northern Canada with the Inuit people. And because of the rural nature of that part of Canada, you get into the typical rural problems of the helpers and the helpies, if you want, live in the same community. And you can't do what a lot of helping organizations say is that, you know, if I'm a social worker in town, I'm not supposed to be friends with you as my client. And it's like, how can I not, you know? Uh, anyway, when we uh, did the filming in Northern Canada, what we did was that we had a helper person. Anyway, there was a a conversation between the helper person with somebody in the office about a patient or, you know, how they could help with the patient. And then the next part of the scene is the social worker now seeing the doctor with a suicide kind of problem. And we tried to normalize that 
you have to accept this kind of crossover role differences in rural types of remote communities. We also filmed in um, in English and Inuktitut at the same time. Wow, that's good. Actors that could speak both languages, and they were local actors. They were local people. And we had also, it was interesting, we had, you know, the literature in the old days sort of said that these Eskimo Inuit people didn't really kill themselves in the way in which we think about suicide, but they would go off onto an ice floe or something and just disappear. And when we started working with them, it was our Southern Canadian attitude that that was history, that they don't do that anymore. But we found out that's not true. (laughs) That sort of thing still happens. And so when we did the film scene of the old man and the, the helper, we actually had set it in a way that he was going off on his snowmobile. <laughs> and that was the message that he was intending to, to do the traditional ice flow kind of disappearance. But <laughs> Yeah, you can give that indication. When you think you know somebody else's culture, best you check to find out whether or not uh, you really know it or not. <laughs> And what happens in reality versus what is assumed. Yes, that's right. Well, that's interesting talking to the community members involved in the adaptation for Indigenous peoples in this country, in Australia, and what sort of conversation scenes and scenarios would be most relevant. It was when you were saying earlier about give people time to think about their attitudes and things like that. That's one of the main things that came out of the ISIS development as well is that actually I need to not only trust the trainer, but I need to trust the people in the room to be able to share the stories and experiences. So give me time to get to know you first and then let's go into more of the actual skills-based training. And that's what happened up in the north too. We did a day and a half of debriefing after one of our original demonstrations 10 years ago now or more. And afterwards, we sat around in a room for a day and a half. And the facilitator was a young man who had been educated in the South, but he'd come back home and he'd gone through the assist training for the first time. But he was the facilitator and he had an in-depth sort of sense of everything in behind assist that a lot of people don't get. Anyway, he was facilitating and he went around the group of 25 and said, so what do you think we should change to fit the Northern culture? And I was in the room and a couple of other people, and they went all the way around the room and the answer was nothing. And then he started to facilitate by saying, well, let's look at page two. And if he didn't get anything out of page two, he would say, well, what about paragraph three? And at some point, it was like, well, what about sentence 10? (laughs) And then he started to draw out what people thought, well, yeah, you know, we could change this or change that. But it was all very basic. It was things like, even if you just put a slide up that said, welcome in our language, that would make a big difference. And that was what Lindy had found out in the Pacific Islands some years before, that if you'll let us use our own word for suicide in the role plays, et cetera, then everything else is fine. <laughs> and then Lorna and some others who were working up sort of in the Kimberley, and they got into a number of Aboriginal communities. And so what happened was that they actually discovered that the model by itself 
told enough of the story for them to understand. Even the symbols that were obviously, you know, North American, if you want, Australian kind of symbols, they made sense. And so it was like you could walk into, in this case, sort of any kind of community with the model and it'll probably work. That's really interesting to learn. Well, actually, don't they say with any human being, you should always communicate to the grade five level of reading anyway? Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, but it, if you're used to reading, then it scares the hell out of you when you think that, well, nobody's going to be able to read my book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially when you've taken all this evidence and, you know, yeah. practical application plus the academia and married it together. And that's a lot of words. And a lot of yeah. written evidence to put behind a model. So it was another example of what's taught in training of trust the process. It was like, trust the people and perhaps just the model. And this thing is going to work. Maybe not perfect, but it's, it's going to work. And so you can put away all the, the pamphlets and the handbook and the workbook and all that kind of stuff and, and just work with the people and use the model sort of like a talking stick. So you triangulate the participant and the instructor and the model, and they can talk directly when that's comfortable. But if they need to, they can talk through the model and communicate with each other that way. And it's just beautiful. (laughs) It'll still work. It'll still work. Yeah. And those are things that We had no idea about when we started building the curriculum. We developed the model, the actual physical kind of graphic model, off of work that I was doing in social work with the geometric thinking of Buckminster Fuller and his idea of holism, having to have a minimum of four. And it was the shape is a geometric tetrahedron. So it's like a triangle-based pyramid. And then we, d- we didn't know this at the beginning, but we discovered that the tetrahedron structure is the same structure as the carbon molecule, and the carbon molecule is considered the essence of life or one of the essences of life. So it's like, wow. <laughs> wow. So then we took the model, and I had figured out ways in social work to multiply the model into something a bit more complex. And then I could change it so that I could have a systematic phase-like model, and I could also have a systemic kind of context to it. And so the PAL model came out of that thinking. And one of the things we were never able to do, partly because of the time, is that it could never graphic, if you want, or articulate the context parts In other words, the context of the person at risk or the person with thoughts and the caregiver and whatever discipline they might have been trained in or the personal life that they came from. Because there's three contexts there that all interplay with each other. And then you take them through a PAL kind of experience that goes from, you know, connection to assisting. And so... All kinds of people just think that, well, that's just a pretty looking model that um, you must have pulled it out of a shelf somewhere. But when you understand the background of it, it's really quite exciting to think that we actually had chosen a structure that is connected to the essence of life kind of molecule, (laughs) which is what it's all about. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. That's why we're all here and why we all want to help each other, you know. And so many people say that, you know, 
I think there's a lot of people that like the model. They just like it. It speaks to them. But to ask them why or where do you think it came from, it's probably a lot will say, it doesn't matter where it came from. I just like it. It just works. What a great way to end this episode. It doesn't matter where it came from. It just works. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you, Kim. Great to talk with you today. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about the start of LivingWorks from the perspective of one of its founders. Join me for more conversation with Richard in the next episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels, write a five-star review, and most importantly, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues on social media, tagging LivingWorks. This podcast is brought to you by LivingWorks a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.